And this scripture is taken from, from the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter, chapter 12, starting with verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Welcome again to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you. You know, just in the last month, we as a, as a country remembered and commemorated the um, attacks of September 11th. And we remembered those victims and those families and uh, the, the great tragedy of our, our generation. And as, as we reflect on, on uh, the attacks of September 11th, they, they also represent something that I think is deeply true of us as human beings across all generations and all cultures, and that's that uh, we, we come together as a people in times of war and in times of conflict and in times of tragedy. So you can probably, if you're old enough, I know some of you were just being born in 2001, and that's great, uh, but if you're old enough to remember, you probably remember where you were uh, on September 11th. And you probably also remember in the weeks that followed the, the outpouring of community that we experienced in our country. Flags were hung from houses. There was uh, incredible support within local communities coming out to, to care for one another. And one of the unique things that we saw after the attacks of September 11th uh, was that over $600 million was given by individuals in just three weeks following those attacks. So $600 million given to support the victims' families, relief funds, things like that. And in those same three weeks, our government uh, approved a federal fund for victims and, and other people in, uh, that were affected by the tragedy uh, that has since been turned into a long-term bill. And that's provided over $7 billion in funding uh, for victims' families and, and related aspects uh, to September 11th. So it is considered the most significant act of charity, the most significant act, any single event of federal funding in world history. Uh, when Joseph and I were in New York City over the summer, uh, he had been saving up money all year. He had all this birthday money he had accumulated. And we would go from store to store and place to place and he wouldn't spend his money and it was driving me crazy. And it was towards the very end of the trip, but we went to the 9-11 Memorial. And at Ground Zero, if you've been there, it's an incredibly heavy and, and somber environment. And after spending some time there, we, we went to leave and there was a little donation box for victims' families. And so he took off his backpack and he got out uh, three or four dollars, which is probably like a tenth of his net worth, you know, as a child. And he, and he just put it in the box and, and, you know, didn't say anything about it. Uh, but there's something that brings us together in times of, of war and hardship, something that brings us together in times of tragedy as, as a community. 
And it's in these times that we actually become a, a more generous people. In fact, I, I would argue that all people are inherently generous. We're all incredibly generous people. We often just don't have a cause worth giving to. We often don't feel part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And so it makes sense just to use our resources and our possessions and our connections for ourselves. But it's in those moments when we remember who we are, when we remember that we are intimately connected to other human beings, that we're caught up in something greater, and, and then all of our lives reorient around that fact, including our use of money and possessions. And so throughout this series, this is the last week in our series, A Place to Belong, and the core message of this series has been that we are fully known and fully loved by God through Christ. And being fully known and fully loved, that's the definition of true belonging that we've been working with. We belong not only to God, but we also belong to one another in the church. In a church where people truly belong to one another, where they, where they feel the fullness of that belonging and, and commitment in a profound way, that becomes a compelling community to those on the outside. And so we've been looking back to Romans 12 as our sort of core text, but also to the lives of these early Christians in, in that very first century. In the 30 years or so after Jesus died and rose and ascended back into heaven, how did these early Christians live in such a way that it changed the entire world? One of the things that they did that was so profound was that they shared their resources, they shared their money and possessions in a way that the world had never seen before. And so as we're wrapping up these, this series, I want us to look at how belonging to a community changes the way we view two things, the way we view the poor and needy and the way we use our money and possessions. And so we want to look at Christianity's vision for loving the poor and needy, but also Christianity's vision for contentment and generosity. And I know sometimes it can be hard to talk about money and possessions. That's something that we don't often do in our culture. You don't just ask somebody how much money they have or what they're doing with their money. And yet the message of Christ, the message of the scriptures is one of freedom. And so my goal for you this morning is to encourage you in the freedom of contentment. That when Christ does his deep work in our, our hearts and our lives, we are suddenly more free than we've ever been before. And, and we are no longer enslaved to the ways of this world. We're no longer enslaved to money and possessions and the status and the things that come with it. We don't have to play that game anymore. We're renewed from the inside out. We're given a life of freedom. Whenever Jesus and the apostles teach on money, it's, it's good news. The response is one of gratitude and generosity. And so this is not a message of law, it's a message of freedom. So first of all, Christianity's vision for loving the poor and needy. In our passage, verse 13, it says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. In verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And again, when we look to the lives of the early Christians, especially the very first years after Jesus' ascension, we see this in Acts chapter 4. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. 
Now, in our culture, we're used to thinking positively of generosity, of charity. Almost any American will say it's, a, it's generally a good and a positive thing to give some of your money away to help those that are in need. And yet that's actually a distinctly Christian way of thinking. In most Eastern cultures and religions, because of the emphasis on karma and reincarnation, Charity is actually something that's looked down upon. It's something that you're not supposed to do because whoever is in need is in need for a reason. If they're poor, it's because they made bad life choices. If they're sick or crippled in some significant way, it may have been because of something they did in a previous lifetime. And so you don't help those who are poor and needy. And so it was into this world that the early Christians came and they flipped all of that upside down. And we talked about last week, how did the early church even know what to do? How did they know how to organize themselves, how to live, how to do church, how to structure their lives and things like that? There was no blueprint. There was no New Testament at this point. The only thing they had was the life of Jesus. They had walked with him. They had heard him teach. They had seen his way of life. And so when they looked at Jesus through his example, they see somebody who was born into a poor lower class family who spent time as a refugee in Egypt as a child, grew up in a rural setting, living day to day for food and shelter. Even as an adult, he rejected common conveniences. He didn't own a home. He, he d was fully dependent on the kindness and the giving of other people, he and the disciples. His life was one of radical simplicity. And he spent most of his time not with the wealthy, but with the poor. Casting out demons, healing lepers, eating meals with the poor. He identified with them in a profound way. And he taught on money and possessions as much as anything else. And he was often teaching us the way of freedom, the way of simplicity and contentment. The Gospel of Luke in particular takes probably the most notice of Jesus' heart for the poor and needy. It's probably the biggest theme in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 4, Jesus introduces himself by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what's beautiful is that that year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee in the Hebrew culture, Jesus was saying from now and forward, it is the year of Jubilee, the time when debts are canceled, when forgiveness is available to all. In Luke 6, he gives a, a shorter version of the Beatitudes saying, simply, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 18, he says to the rich young ruler, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And so the early church embodied this way of life that they learned from Jesus. Everything they did, they did in support of the poor and needy, both among them and outside of their own community. Jesus' own brother, James, in James 1, he summarized Christianity by saying, religion that God our Father accepts is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, it's important to note that throughout the New Testament, the priority is on the church's care for their own sick, their own poor, their own needs. And so in our passage, Romans 12, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. 
And in Acts 4, it says there were no needy persons among them. And so there's a sort of tension that the early church had to hold together, that we too hold together, that the priority of caring for the poor and needy is those in our own church family, just as you would care for those first in your own biological family. And yet at the same time, Jesus was constantly healing and caring for the poor and the needy outside of the faith as well. And so these are the two things that we hold together as well. Now, why did they, why did they do this? Romans 12 and, and Acts 4, it's not promoting a type of communism where they didn't have any personal possessions. Instead, they were willingly giving away almost everything they owned. Everything they were giving, the, the shared lifestyle that they were embodying, it was totally voluntary. It was because their hearts had been deeply changed by experiencing Christ. They understood that generosity was, was a mark of maturity as well as a means to maturity. That by giving, by supporting the poor and weak, they were becoming more like Christ. And that leads us to the second thing, Christianity's vision for contentment. Because they truly believed, as Jesus said and as recorded in Acts, that it's better to give than to receive. They truly believed that greed was, was at the root of so much of evil and that generosity towards those both in and outside the church was the mark and the means of a transformed heart. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Just from this one passage, Paul is giving us a, an entire framework for thinking about money and possessions. And the framework is all based on commit, contentment. It's not based on giving. It's not based on how much you have or how much you want. It's based on a content heart, godliness with contentment. And so this passage provides us with an eternal perspective. We're brought into this world with nothing and we leave this world with nothing. Life is eternal. Our own eternal lives have already begun in Christ. And yet the money and possessions that we have in this world, they don't, they don't go with us. Second, he teaches us to be like Christ is to be content. And Paul says this is great gain. Speaking of accumulating, if there's something you're going to accumulate, don't accumulate money, but accumulate contentment. Find a way of storing up contentment in your own life. Do anything you can to, to promote your own contentment. It also provides a warning against greed. He says it's those who want to get rich, not necessarily those who, who are rich, but anybody who is desperate to get rich, they fall into temptation. It's, it's a trap. Because it's, it's never satisfying if you're desperately wanting to get rich. It's never enough. There's no point in which you're satisfied when that's the driving impulse of your life, even if you don't realize it. He says people have even left the faith in the pursuit of wealth and status and everything that comes with it. And so greed robs us of our joy and contentment. It damages our relationships. You could probably think 
within your own extended biological family. Almost every family has those feuds, you know, like between the grandpa and the uncle. They're not talking to each other. They haven't spoken in 16 years. At least in my family, and I think in a lot, that's almost always has something to do with money, right? There was a loan that wasn't repaid. There was a misunderstanding, and now they just don't talk anymore. It's the love of money and it's greed over money that damages our relationships. It enters us into this spiral of achievement and accumulation that we never get out of. Meanwhile, it's interesting, even statistics in America show that your happiness only goes up to a certain point when you have more money. All the psychology research points to about $35,000 for an individual or about $60,000 for a family as the peak of happiness and well-being. So those who are in poverty and barely able to eat, it actually does increase as they get a little bit more. But after that point of having your basic needs met, extra money and, and possessions, it actually drives your happiness and well-being down. Statistically speaking, the most unhappy people are those who make the most and spend the most and save the most. There's a great book, one of my favorite books, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. He has a chapter on simplicity in the book. And I've thought about just bringing the book and just reading the entire chapter. It's that good. And then I wouldn't have to do any sermon prep that week. I might save that for another time. But Foster says, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us to an insane attachment to things. He says, courageously, we need to articulate new, more human ways to live. We should take exception to the modern psychosis that defines people by how much they produce or what they earn. In fact, it's over and over throughout the, the chapter that Richard Foster describes our attachment to money in terms of psychosis and in terms of insanity. And he's using those words not lightly, but he's saying insanity is a detachment from reality. And that's basically the way we view money and possessions. We know that it's not going to satisfy us. And yet we have this insane notion that it will. And so Foster in the chapter, he gives us three inner attitudes about money and possessions that can produce contentment. He says, first, recognize that everything we have is a gift from God. Second, he says it's God's business, not ours, to provide for our needs. God provides for the flowers of the field, the, the sparrows. Will he not provide for us? And then third, we must make our possessions available to others. For us, as our, our three boys are getting a little bit older, they're uh, 10, almost 8, and 5, and we're, we're teaching them about money. Uh, and that's one of the great things about being a parent is that you get to teach them all the things that you wish you would have learned growing up. And so when we're teaching our kids about money, we're, we're, teaching, them about, we're teaching them about contentment, about, about happiness, that happiness is not tied to how much money you get for your birthday. Happiness is not tied to how many toys you have because there's always another toy, right? You know the emotional crash after a birthday when there's no more toys to open. We're teaching them that happiness is not directly linked to money and possessions. Second, we're teaching them to give and to save. So with our boys, anytime they get money, even if it's just birthday money, we're saying immediately off the top, you take 10% and put it in the giving envelope, and you take 15% and you put it in the saving envelope. So right there, 25% is gone. So we're trying to teach them and train them 
that you may have gotten a, a whole dollar, but that whole dollar is not yours. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he says it really strongly, more strongly than me. I'm just quoting him. But he says, there is money in your wallet that doesn't belong to you. You have clothes in your drawer. You have things in your house that don't belong to you. That is, if you haven't been giving to those who are in need. And so we're trying to teach our kids to, to give, to save, deferred gratification. That's the hardest lesson for any child slash adult. We're also telling them not to just assume that you can pay for something later. So we used to say, you know, if they have $6 and they want something that's seven, we'd say, okay, we'll give you the other dollar. But then we read some books and we're like, no more. That's setting you up for a life of credit card debt. <laughs> Go home and save up another dollar. We're also telling them not to take out college loans. They're, you know, Joseph's 10, he's like, what's the big deal? We're like, the big deal is community college. That's where it's at. Every night at dinner, Lord, thank you for community college, the backbone of American education. We're so thankful for it. No college loans. Work your way through college. And our goal is as, they, as they're growing up, as they're finishing their schooling, we want to teach them to work for purpose and not for pay. Choose, choose a major. Find a job. Take a promotion based on purpose, not based on pay based on what it contributes to your own life and to the lives of others, not just the dollar amount that's tied to it. It's greed, love of money that robs us of what matters most, and then contentment, living for eternity, that's the ultimate wealth, because it can never be taken away. Now that leads us to the third thing, Christianity's vision for generosity. And so to summarize, in Christ we have true belonging. We're fully known, we're fully loved, fully accepted, both by God and by his people, and we are set free from having to prove ourselves. There is nothing left for us to achieve, spiritually or otherwise. The pressure is off, and we have a freedom in Christ that nobody else has. And so we, we have the freedom to identify with other people, whether they're above us or below us in the world's eyes. So much of our world is wanting to promote itself to show exactly what the standard of living is that they have reached. And so it makes sense that people would live on 100% or 110% of what they make. But there's freedom and contentment to identify with those who are exactly like us on the inside, even if culture might view them differently. And so Christianity's vision for generosity it's includes and it starts with supporting your local church. So when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, he says, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And so if you see what Paul's doing here, it's like kind of brilliant. It's, uh, you know, he's writing to the Corinthians saying, you should see what the Macedonians have been giving. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty has welled up in rich generosity. I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And so Paul is often writing to the New Testament churches, encouraging them to demonstrate their contentment in the Lord by generosity to the local churches. Even the book of Romans, which is one of the most significant books of the Bible in terms of its contribution to our understanding of God and theology, it's actually a support letter. Because when he gets to the end, chapter 15, he says, I plan to go to Spain, 
I hope to see you all passing through and to have you assist me on my journey. And you're like, oh, that's why this has been written to us. And he says, after I enjoyed your company for a while. He's basically telling them to get their wallets out because he's coming to town. But Jesus, Paul, the other apostles, they're not just doing this just to provide for their own salaries. They're doing this because they understand the freedom of contentment. They understand the joy and freedom that comes when you, when you let go of what belongs to you in support of a greater community and a greater mission. This fall, we're, we're formalizing a, a covenant membership. And so anybody can always come to Trinity. You can come to our community groups. You can serve alongside of us. You can do almost everything just as a visitor to Trinity, and that'll always be the case. We're also establishing a, a formal pathway for discipleship and for maturity. And we're saying there are certain practices that we as a church believe are, are really good for your development in Christ. And we're going we're gonna to ask that our members commit to those together. And so one of those commitments is to give 10% of our income to the church or to work towards giving 10%. And you might ask why 10%? And we would say that 10% seems to be the general pattern of giving in the scriptures. It's not so much a, a hard command as it seems to be a rule of thumb throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And 10% in our culture, it seems to be enough to, to require a, a real sacrifice and yet not be so heavy that you can't provide for your own needs. Remember, there have been times in our life when it felt like a huge sacrifice, and then other seasons of life where it didn't feel like as much of a sacrifice. But the New Testament also points us to identifying with the poor and needy through our giving. So it really does have a profound effect on our mindsets, on our lifestyles, when we are living on 90% of what we're given. It causes us to willingly lower our standard of living in a way that identifies us with people who might be below us on an income ladder. And so there's something that God is doing in our hearts by calling us to live on less than we could. You know, very practically, 10% also helps to establish new churches like us. And so we may not always ask in membership that people give 10% or work towards it, but as a young church right now, this is a season where we are trying to reach a self-sustaining budget. We're trying to be funded by our own members. We're still at a place where about 40 to 50% of our funding as a church comes from the outside, and that's normal for starting a new church. We've been really blessed by outside givers, but that support is gradually decreasing in plans that our own internal giving is gradually increasing. Now, of course, if you're not able to give 10% yet and you're interested in becoming a member, we totally understand, and this is not a, a hard and fast rule. You might be saying, I'm a college student or a grad student or I'm unemployed, and that doesn't mean you can't become a member. Instead, we still want to point you to the same thing, which is the freedom of contentment. We know that, that student loans are a monster. Many of us are still paying, literally still paying, for decisions that we made 10 years ago. And so this is a process just like everything in spiritual maturity is. Now you might be encouraged to know that we as a church actually practice tithing ourselves. So 10% of everything, at least 10% of everything that's given here to the church goes right back out. And I'll admit that's kind of hard for me as a pastor as we're trying to get established that extra 10% would really, really help us right now. 
but I'm afraid that if we didn't do it now, it'd be a lot harder to, to transition to it at some point when suddenly we, Lord willing, will have more. And so what does that 10% go to when it's given here? Well, we support church planning teams in France and in Spain. And so Casey and I and others have, have chosen to partner with church planners that are working in areas of the world where there are fewer than 1% Christians, and they're doing incredible, remarkable things in France and in Spain. And any money that's given here will go to those efforts as well. We support Soma Church in Jeff City. So two weeks ago, I got to go down and see my friend, Pastor John Nelson. Soma is a predominantly African-American church that sits right on Lincoln University's campus. And it was such a blessing to go worship with them. It's amazing to see they're about the exact same size as we are. They're a few years ahead of us, but same number of adults, almost as many kids. And I was so, so encouraged by being there and then so, so encouraged to come back and be here the following week. And so I commend you, if you're ever in Jeff City or you know people in Jeff City, point them towards Soma Church. We support church planning through Sojourn Network. We support also the poor and needy in our own community. And so you can see how people spend money really reflects their heart. What we do with our 10% is we support church planning and we support the poor and needy. And so we give to City of Refuge, which helps refugees get established in our community. We have a small benevolence fund that I would say is, is strong, small and incredibly strong because through it, just in the past year, we've been able to, to help provide for a, a funeral in our community. Uh, there, one of the other small churches in town, there was a, a member who passed away uh, with very little resources, and so they were raising money for the funeral, and we were able to give from our benevolence fund to support that family's funeral. We've been able to pay medical bills for our own members and contributed to families uh, who are recovering from natural disasters in the state. And so we as a church are trying to practice what we preach. We're trying to take 10% or more, we've given more this year, right off the top and giving it away and trusting God, trusting that he is enough, trusting that he will provide for us. And so this is part of Christianity's vision for generosity. It includes support for the local church, but it also includes remembering the poor. In Galatians 2, Paul is describing how he got started on his first church planning journey. And he says of the apostles, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And I think that's an important thing for us to pause and reflect on. What does it look like to remember the poor? What does it look like in our, our own lives to remember the poor and needy? What does it look like through our work to remember the poor and needy? What does it look like in our friendships, in our neighborhood, to remember those who are less fortunate than us? Who are those in our society that have been overlooked or neglected or cast aside? And how can we identify with them, not just in an act of charity, as if we're above them giving down, but in solidarity because we know that we are broken human beings just like them. That apart from Christ, we are completely poor, completely bankrupt in ourselves. So we have no room to look down on anyone. We of all people can identify with the poor and needy and we can remember them in our own lives. And so I would encourage you too to, to consider the financially poor, but also Consider those around you that might be marginalized in some other way. Consider those who might be suffering in some other form 
of poverty, whether it's uh, struggling mental health or struggling illness or something like that? What does it look like to identify yourself with people in need? And so remember the poor, and then this is the last thing. Remember the good news. Remember the freedom of contentment that comes only in Christ. Because all of this giving to the local church, all of the support for the poor and needy, all the acts of charity and goodness, it all will run dry if it's not coming from a changed heart. So many people in our world are rightly giving to charities, rightly supporting really good causes, but it always comes only to a certain point unless there's been real heart change. The message of the scriptures is that being content is far better than being rich. And Paul, when he was writing to to the Corinthians, that message I, I started earlier, the last verse, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that's incredibly good news if you catch what Paul is saying there. He's saying you who are poor, and that's all of us. You who are completely broken and bankrupt apart from Christ, and that's all of us. You who are poor have become eternally wealthy through the poverty of Christ. This same Christ who has eternally existed as the Son of God, this same Christ who the Scriptures call the King of Glory, the co-creator of the universe, who brought everything into his existence and sustains it by his word, this God who every knee will bow to on earth, above earth, below the earth, the entire cosmos submits to his words, this same Jesus became poor for our sake. He came to earth in a a small human body, born into poverty, raised in a simple lifestyle, And then even that he left behind so that he could spread the message of the kingdom. Even more, he was wrongly accused. He was beaten. He was spat on. He was rejected. He was whipped. He was crucified. He was buried. And what we see when we see Christ lowering himself to our level, identifying with us and our brokenness, identifying with us even to the point of death. The message is that when you love someone, you give yourself for them. And Christ is the only one who has ever given of himself fully. And why did he do it? Paul says he did it out of love. The king of glory became the suffering servant so that we who are completely poor and broken, the deepest sense might become eternally wealthy where it really matters. And Jesus was risen in victory. He ascended back into glory. He reigns now in glory. He is no longer poor, but he is eternally rich in every way. And he invites us into the freedom of contentment to sing his praises, to live before him in his presence. And so, yes, it is so hard to let go of money. It's so hard to to let go of possessions. It's so hard to identify with those that we don't have to identify with. So hard not to capitalize on privileges that might be given to us. And yet Henry now, in a writer, he says, we are so inclined to cover up our own poverty and ignore it 
that we often miss the opportunity to discover God who dwells in poverty. We're more like Christ in our poverty than our wealth. More Christ-like when we're giving than spending or saving. And this is true freedom, receiving what's been given, remembering that it belongs to the Lord and holding it with open hands. To be a Christian, to belong to God's people, it means the freedom of contentment. Let's pray.